What do you wish people who have not encountered dementia in their lives knew about this disease? This is going to sound crazy, but it's so honest. You know, I wish they knew it is not contagious. It bothers me tremendously when people stop coming. Okay, people, you're not going to catch it. Come over, sit. And it's exasperating because my mother helped so many people. And yet those people don't call or visit. I'm, you know, now, of course, when she's old, when she first got it, it really bothered me because her friends were still driving then and stuff. Her Only her best friend from kindergarten, Miss Adams, who I had been still trying to get them together every couple months. And, um, but yeah, that really bothers me that uh, people feel like if they're around you, it's going to rub off on them or something. And that, that bothers me immensely. So that's over there. You can't catch it, people. And the other thing uh, very related to that is the other reason people say, well, you know, we don't have anything to talk about. How about you just come and sit? How about you just, you don't always have to talk. And so those are the, the two things that I think are really uh, important to me that I wish, you know, people realize that yeah. uh, they don't get how isolating it is. Welcome to the All's Authors Podcast. We're so glad you found us. I'm Marianne Shuko, a registered nurse, author, and dementia daughter. Join me each week to listen to one of our more than 250 authors talk about their dementia journey, sharing intimate details and painfully obtained knowledge to help others currently on that path. We hope these stories offer you comfort and support as we strive to break the silence and stigma surrounding a dementia diagnosis. May one of our authors speak to your experience. Content presented on the following podcast is for information purposes only. Views and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent views of the Whole Care Network. Always consult your physician for medical and fitness advice and always consult your attorney for legal advice. And thank you for listening to the Whole Care Network. When her beloved mother, Doris, was diagnosed with dementia in 2006, Loretta Woodward Beanie began learning everything she could about the disease and hoped to share that information so others could be more prepared than she was for this devastating diagnosis. In 2013, that hope turned into Loretta's first book, Being My Mom's Mom, A Journey Through Dementia from a Daughter's Perspective, which highlights the first six years of the family's dementia journey and was recently updated to reflect the next seven years. Loretta and her family's story have been featured in a PBS special called Alzheimer's, The Caregiver's Perspective, and in articles in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and AARP's feature page on caregivers. She was selected as the 2019 Trailblazer of the Year by Johns Hopkins Medicine. She has also authored a coloring book for seniors entitled Colors Flowing From My Mind and an inspirational photo book entitled Refreshment for the Caregiver's Spirit. In this episode, we discuss the challenging subjects of finding and financing a care home for a parent, writing a book to fund her mom's care, the wonder of Legos, 
and why people may step away when a friend receives a dementia diagnosis. Hi, Loretta. Welcome to the Owls Authors Podcast. How are you today? I'm fabulous, Mary. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Well, this is quite an honor for me, too. It's always nice to meet our Owls authors out there in the world. I know, right? There's a lot of us. There are over 230 at this point. Oh, oh wow. Okay. I didn't know it was that many. That's, okay, that's, that's a whole a lot. lot. Yeah, we've really grown. We've grown a lot mm -hmm. in the last five years. So. Did you expect that? No, no, we didn't expect any of this at all. <laughs> oh, okay. That's a lot more than I thought. I'm behind, clearly. Yeah, we wow. didn't expect it to take off the way that it did. But <laughs> it's a good thing because so many people, they have stories and they're sharing their yeah. stories and people need to hear them. So we're yeah. pleased that we can tell the stories, especially in this way with an audio format so people can listen yes. as they go along. Right. So can you just Very. tell us a little bit about your story? Um, you're still, you're taking care of your mom. Yes. And so yes, so we've been at this for a while. And so she was diagnosed in 2006 and she was 77 at the time. And, you know, I think in some families that's, uh, you know, the people say, well, you know, she, you know, she had a good life until then kind of thing. But I'm thinking, wow, that's really young. So she was the first person in our family uh, and I was shocked by it because um, it's, you know, so young for them. They live to be a hundred and some, you know, usually in our family. So I'm thinking, wow, she could live 30 more, <laughs> you know, years with this. Mm. And um, she is still just going strong. Very little wrong with her aside from the dementia. And she turned 91 in February. So she still understands cake. She doesn't understand birthdays, but she gets <laughs> cake. So. <laughs> so we had cake for her 91st, so um, quite the journey so far. Been a pretty wild 14 years, so. <laughs> yeah, that is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and your mom, she's living in assisted living now? Yes, so uh, here in Maryland, we have group homes. They have those in a lot of states, but they have a pretty big network of group homes here. So this is the second group home that she's um, been in. You hate to move them but she um, had qualified for a subsidy program. And so um, that's where she is in a group home. So yeah, and it's, it's just like any other single family home. It's awesome. They all eat around the same table. Probably they don't social distancing right now though, but uh, typically they eat around the same table. And that was one of the things I, I fell in love with it right from the beginning because of that. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. So it's, it's, not awesome. like a, it's not like a nursing home. It is not, it is. And the one I originally picked had floor plan almost exactly like my home. Oh. So in the first one, the caregivers lived in the basement um, and the, the bedrooms upstairs were for the residents. In the home she's in now, the home is much larger and the basement is not only um, has three rooms down in the basement too, and a humongous laundry room and um, uh, nurse's office. There is an arm in there. There's a nurse's office, which include cots, which is also very useful for right now. And so the the layout is unbelievable. And they have the lift, stair lift, of course. Um, but there's it's a split level up and lower. Very very nice. She has five homes. This particular owner, and they are all immaculate. It is it's stunning. That's so I lucked out twice, which is amazing. Yeah, I'm really glad to yeah. hear that because not everybody has a good experience. Um, and that's what was so challenging about deciding to move her because um, 
how I loved the first place. It was called Mamie's Loving Care. How can you get better than that? So I was terrified <laughs> of moving her. But the reason I did was really just about the cost. I was paying a little more than uh, about $1,400 a month uh, in addition to her, you know, for her care. And that, of course, meant that I'd have to work until she passed. And not that I would not have done that, but um, when we got accepted, you know, finally on being in the roles of that, um, I decided to go ahead and move her. And we were on this list, by the way, for eight years. Wow. So one of the things I would say, you know, to people is uh, don't wait to apply for these programs. I don't know why I waited. I don't know why I didn't put my name on every list in 2006, but I waited till 2009 and they were 23,000 people on the list wow. in front of us. And it took eight years. So that just goes to show you, Marianne, how many people need help. Yes. And there's so many people. I thought my mother's little piddly government salary was very small, but there are people that make less. Oh yeah. That are even in worse, you know, need. So wow, amazing. So I've been very lucky, very happy with the situation. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. I know when my stepfather was went into the nursing home, it cost um, twelve thousand dollars a month. And yeah. I don't know anybody who would have earned that kind know. of money in their lifetime to pay for that. He was there for eighteen months. And oh. you're talking about, you know, people whose working years were decades ago, they didn't earn much money at all. So it, there's a problem there. It is a problem. Wow. That's a big problem. Yeah, that's a lot of money. That was in Massachusetts. Wow. Yeah. So um, I want you to tell us a little bit about your wonderful book, of Being <laughs> My Mom's Mom. How did you yes. uh, come to write that? Ah, that thing, I, I tell you the title, you know, everybody loves and it really came from mom herself. So um, we were in a McDonald's and, you know, she wanted apple pie and she didn't order anything else. And so I said, well, you can have that, but you have to eat all your lunch first. And the cashier burst into, you know, first started laughing. And my mother said, I used to be her mom and now she's mine. And so that, <laughs> that's the title of that book. And, uh, you know, for me, I wrote it for two reasons. First, uh, just honestly. I wrote it because I was going to use the, in any funds I got from it to pay for her care, which came in quite handy. And then the second reason, particularly in the African-American community, there is such a stigma about this disease. You know, don't tell anybody that they have it. Well, what's the big secret? And so for me, I was so unprepared for this disease. So I was like, I cannot be the only one. So I wrote this book to try to help people and, and to let go. Of the, I tell my whole story. So I let uh, I hope it helps people let go of the stigma a little bit and to offer some suggestions that work for me so that nobody else is as woefully unprepared as I was. So those are the two reasons. Oh, that sounds really great. That's and I did the self-publishing thing because for me, it was it was more important to get the story out and the information out than it was to try to, you know, go through the normal, you know, thing of publishing and being rejected and all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's how I ended up doing that. And it was absolutely worth it. Oh, yes. Yeah. A lot of our authors take that route. Mm -hmm. And they write for that reason, too, because they've been through such a tremendous experience. They don't want it to have been for nothing. Yes. Yeah, and to share with others. So now we have a lot of information that we can share. We so do. How, 
How have I mean, readers responded to everybody's your stories? Is you know, it's been great reading other people's stories too. So I think that's mm-hmm. important because even though everybody's story is different, you still get a you get a really different perspective on even the same information that we have, which is also cool. Right. So, yeah, that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. And some people just want if they read about others that lived through this and made it, they'll know that they can make it too. That's very true. And there is life at the end of this journey and it can be very good. true yeah we okay. like to stress that so how have readers responded to your book what was the response oh, you know oh, in some ways it's been really overwhelming in a sense uh you know i do a lot of speaking as i think you know and so most of the sales um have come from people who attend you know a lot of these conferences um where i've um, been speaking and so, um, you know, sometimes I have to have somebody help me sell the book and then, you know, I sign them all and it's been amazing. I, I was, uh, it's overwhelming sometimes how many people say, oh, I read your book. I learned this. I learned that. So that part's been um, just amazing. And, you know, some of the um, you know, people that I've been working with, the groups I've been working with, I never thought I, I would work with in a million years, Johns Hopkins has probably bought 2,000 books for wow. their, they have, they have more than a dozen support groups, you know, spouses of, children of, siblings of, uh, and, 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 you know, gay and lesbian, everybody's group is different. You know, you come, you have different types of questions. So I love that they don't try to lump everybody together. I mean, if it was a general support group, people would go, sure. But the fact that it's, um, you know, tailored is great. So, you know, the, what has been amazing to me is that every one of these kinds of groups have been uh, supporters of the book. So I, I've, you know, really been overwhelmed by it. I thought it would reach a few, you know, people, you know, you know people at your church, people your former neighborhood, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in, they had a book sign and they were also <laughs> proud of me. I lived in that house for, you know, in my whole growing up. I was born in that house and lived there in D.C. until I was, you know, got, got married. So I thought, you know, those kind of people support you. But <laughs> all the rest of these people that you don't know, that part's been amazing. So I'm, yeah. I'm just absolutely thrilled with it. And that's validating, too. It is. You know, it on many levels. Is. Absolutely yeah. is. To see your so, story touch so many other people. Mm-hmm. Or even it's that amazing. help people. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. What do you wish you knew at the beginning of your dementia journey that you didn't find out until later? (laughs) Well, you pointed it out a minute ago and that's pretty, you know, just being more prepared and by prepared, I mean how much cash you really going to need later. And, you know, really, I think no matter where I speak, one of the things people talk about all the time is, wow, I wish I'd had that difficult conversation early on. Mm-hmm. You know, so many of us guess I lucked into that first group home that I, you know, found for her, but we don't have the difficult conversations. The only joke, you know, we used to have this joke in our family. The only thing I really knew about my mother, where she wanted to live when she got older was not with her children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had to well, promise, we had to sign a document that said we wouldn't, yeah, we wouldn't do that. So... But yet we didn't have the, we didn't go further and say, well, where do you want to live? Because then, you know, all of us as children, then you put mama somewhere, like, oh, I hope she likes this place. But, and it can be traumatic. And I know some people, I swear, who have PTSD over, you know, trying to put their, you know, loved ones in the right place. So that's what I wish that I had known. I wish I knew 
how much preparation you really should do before your parents get to that age where it's even possible that they won't be able to make decisions for themselves. I love there's, there's several couples at my church that have done all of the planning and their kids don't have to do anything but call the 800 number. And I mean for everything. And they downsized and moved to a one bedroom or whatever. So their kids don't have to go through 25,000 boxes of stuff. And I just applaud them yeah. um, because it really does take so much pressure for that. So, you know, lack of preparation really causes a lot of stress. And that's the last thing we need as caregivers. And so I wish, and I talk, you know, anybody that's heard me speak, I speak for like 20 minutes on just the preparation part. How do you get prepared? And you can go on AARP and Alzheimer's Association and look at how to have those difficult conversations. Mom, it's time for you to think about moving. What? You know, <laughs> and practice with, I, I always tell people, we do it in some of my sessions. I tell people, practice with a friend about what you're going to say to your mom, you know, or dad or whoever. So yeah, and people love that. They love practicing. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea to practice. Mm -hmm. So I wish I had known that and, and prepared for that way before. And I tell people, you know, not everybody's going to be as lucky as me. I lucked into that. And I don't want anybody to feel that. And it ended up with some horrible place. So, you know, the more preparation you do, go on a tour. Yeah, well, I was lucky because I, something told me to have the talk with my parents, my mom and her husband. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought that they had it all together, but they had nothing together. Ah, so I, we brought see? them to, to their attorney and we got all the papers in place, which you have to have because once there is dementia, then there's no signing anymore. So yep. um, we ended up having to put those papers into action a year later because my stepfather, he was the one with the dementia, but ah, okay, it was such a blessing, such a blessing you know, to know I, that I had, had all the documents I needed. And I, you know, I, I just had the living will and stuff, but you know how now you get those books, you can fill out all the pages and you know, yeah. all that. And I love those and I show those in my presentations as well because again and then to knowing where the documents are as opposed to going through 30 boxes and that kind of thing so yeah pretty neat stuff yeah so. right find being able to find them yeah, yeah. That's a tough one <laughs> so have you i've seen that you've written some other books can you tell us about that yeah so the the second one was really just a tribute to my husband who was such a um oh my god he was such a help with my mother he worshiped that woman drove her everywhere they were inseparable and um for caregivers who have you know down times it's called refreshment for the caregiver spirit so it's really just a, a photo book if you will with motivational sayings for caregivers to sort of lift them up. So for every, most people's favorite picture is, <laughs> uh, there's a picture of, uh, I had spoken in Dubai and there's a, we went on a hot air balloon ride while we were there and over the desert and the, the pictures are glorious. And I took a picture of the balloon in front of us, you know, flying away, so to speak. So the caption to that one is, encourage the negative people in your life to fly away. And I have that and people love that because Sometimes as caregivers, you know, we have to admit this, everybody that wants to give us advice, you know, is usually negative. They criticize everything we do, but they're not helping us at all. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just criticizing. So I tell them, you know, try to block, we have enough trouble. Try to block all the negative people. Out. One of the companies where I spoke, they said, can we put this up in our elevator? <laughs> <laughs> they blew it up and put it in the elevator. And there's some really great ones too. There's a picture of a balcony in Maui 
and it says, you know, take a seat to take care of you. And people don't believe who know me that I sat in that seat every morning for like 20, 25 minutes, like you sat still for that long. So um, the pictures are stunning and they were taken either by me or my husband and he was a fabulous photographer. And so I, of course, dedicated it to him. So that's the second one. And then I just did in February of 2019, I did um, a coloring book for mom. Sometimes you have to make your own activity. You know, she loved coloring, but she's to the point now where her dexterity has really decreased. So she couldn't stay within the little lines. They were too small, you know, for her. So I just used word shapes and made these geometrical circles and triangles and big things. And she loves it. And um, I made all of these really cool designs. And what was even a more amazing, there's all kinds of pictures of it and some video. I had about 60 designs that I'd done. I printed them out and she picked the 30 for the book. She picked the And so I put her picture on the back. This woman is hysterical. So I, we were coloring about a month and a half ago and, and she looks on the back and I put her picture on the back because she helped me. And she looks at the, her picture and she says, what are you doing on the back of my book? <laughs> like, girl, you wouldn't have a book if it wasn't for me. <laughs> what are you doing on the back of my book? Lord help me. Anyway. So yeah. And it's amazing. So, and that's done well too. The Hopkins, Oh my God, the support group folks there and some of the other churches in particular where I've spoken they love it for their caregivers whose parents or spouses are in the same position. They, they can't do, I have a lot of coloring books here that worked great for her in the early stages. And uh, one of my newest presentations is about, you know, activities through all the stages. And so I had to make my own late stage coloring book. <laughs> all right. Well, that's great. But she loved it. So. Yeah. So they, they've done well too. So I'm really pretty happy. That's awesome. <laughs> so um you mentioned your traveling what was uh was that your favorite self-care activity what would you do to take care of yourself oh, during this time you know that's a great question so I, you know unfortunately i have more than one so um my husband and i were big rvers uh, we were going to live in our rv and travel the country and all that that we actually were practicing that we were on a you know short, kind of extended vacation practicing our retirement plan when he died, you know, very suddenly. So I promised him I would keep RVing if that ever happened, you know, something ever happened. So I've been you know, doing that and that's a great stress reliever traveling. People can't believe I'm traveling by myself, but you know, I meet other people there. So you're mm -hmm. not really alone. And then um, the biggest stress reliever kind of thing for me is um, I have this really adult habit of playing with Legos. We call A-Falls, adult fans of Lego. Mm -hmm. And just honestly, um, I spent so much time playing with Legos with my mom when I was a kid. We spent hours doing that. I had a lot of allergies as a kid and had to stay inside a lot. So we built everything and she just wanted to tap, you know, have me tap into my creativity and it just stayed with me. So I teach hmm. uh, Lego art classes for seniors and kids and stuff. And that's probably what I'll be doing in retirement. And for, even though it's been six years since my mom has known who I am, she still can, you know, click the little Lego bricks together. She has a, a real affinity for it still. And uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, people who have come and seen it, you know, because they don't believe it when you say, oh, she can do some little Lego. They're like, what? And she really can. So for years, it was our only connection. So it's, it's amazing that. Uh, so those are my two primary ones. And I work out every day as well. 
well. So I switch around with those, you know, three things and uh, mm -hmm. it's a really good uh, set of outlets for me. Yeah, that keeps you really busy. Did you know that so, they're building a Legoland in New York State? I certainly did. I went, they had a thing here in Maryland for the grand opening and gave out a lot of hats and stuff. I got one. And so, yeah, I've even been to um, Lego headquarters in Denmark several times. And wow. so they, they, I, I, uh, I teach something called Lego serious play. And so mm -hmm. I went to a couple of conferences there about that. And that's primarily for adult businesses to help people communicate more effectively. So yeah, whenever this virus thing's over, I can't wait to see it. They've pushed their uh, opening day back. So yeah, it's about 10 minutes from my house. Oh my God. Okay. We'll see when I come, we got to have lunch. Yes. They put a, um, they had to put a moratorium on, on the construction project at this time. Yeah. Cause we're recording yeah. this during the COVID-19 outbreak. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So they did that. And, um, I can't believe it's supposed to open in, on July 4th. Yeah. They might make it. Yeah. It's, uh, it'll be exciting. It's amazing. So that yeah. sounds like a great hobby to have. It is. It yeah. is. It can be expensive, but good. But I try to have people, especially those with Alzheimer's, um, I try to have them, you know, just explore their creativity. One of the things I do every other month or until this uh, virus, I go to a continuing care community in Maryland. Um, and I go to the dementia wing and I do Lego art with all the dementia folks. And I had the most amazing experience, just real short. Um, Legos, you build the little you know, bricks on top of each other. And for the first time ever, a woman turned it over. And the bottom half, you know, side, the upside of the Lego bricks are very different looking. They have little holes uh, in them. And this woman built this whole thing upside down. And I said, wow, that is fascinating. And I, as I said to her, I've never seen anybody do it upside down. And she said, well, yes, it's upside down, just like my brain. Oh, Isn't that amazing? That is and then the staff told me she was a PhD and taught at the University of Maryland for 30 some years oh in gosh. like physics or something like that. Isn't that amazing? That's I really miss them. I haven't great. been there in a couple of months. I really miss them, but they love it. They yeah, absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah, that is fantastic. So you do a lot of outreach, and I think you said you work with the um, um, Alzheimer's Association. Yeah, and then one of my, my primary volunteer thing, I've, I've done a lot for the Alzheimer's Association up and down the East Coast, but my primary volunteer work is um, with Us Against Alzheimer's, the ad advocacy group. They do a lot of um, lobbying, if you will, on the Hill, you know, always asking for money for research and, and all of that. And so they hate to see us coming. I always joke about that. And uh, we meet, you know, one-on-one -on -one with our representatives. We take stories of our uh, loved ones. We took a, uh, our shadow boxes that we made with all our, you know, things that our um, parents loved. And, you know, meet one-on-one -on -one with them. We answer questions and all that. And um, I am co-moderator of the Us Against Alzheimer's Facebook page support group. And we have um, almost 5,000 members. And what I love about that group is uh, we have members in the UK uh, and Canada as well. So no matter what time it is, somebody's always up. So if you write, oh, this is the worst day ever, you know, somebody says, hey, tomorrow will be better or whatever. So it, it is a fabulous group of people. There are all kinds of, um, you know, advice. And so, and I love our composition, the three of us, one of them was very young, whose mother had it very young and, and died very young. 
and she was a sandwich generation you know, person. She was raising little kids and had her mom. And then the other one was more um, professional. She has um, years of um, you know, counseling and things. And so she's the third person. So we make a really good team. We have very different strengths and uh, it makes for a really good group. And I, I love, I've been doing it, um, probably the longest running one right now. I've been doing it uh, five years or so. Oh, that's exciting. So, yeah, it's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's that's awesome. Great. These, these um, chat rooms and Facebook groups are very important all the time, but especially now where people uh, are being isolated, you know, mandatory. And I'm sure it's very difficult for the caregivers who can't get out or can't visit their loved one or are trapped really. indoors with their loved one. And, yeah. you know, it's not an easy time for anybody. It yeah. is not. I can't imagine these caregivers not being able to go home. The one woman that I mentioned, you know, she has teenagers. I, I, and thank God they're very self-sufficient people. You know, and they're not the preteen that you got to wonder about, you know, setting the house on fire or something. But um, there's, they seem to be very responsible. I think she had done lessons for the school. You know, nobody's in school. So I think she's done well. But I can't imagine being there. And she's so dedicated to our loved ones. You know, it's, it's ah, amazing. I plan on giving them a, a huge gift when this is over. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I hope they can do a spa. I'd love to do a spa day. So, uh, we were talking to the children, spouses of the residents. We're talking about how are we going to, you know, treat them when this is over. We got to come up with something big to support them. So. We're going to work with the owner and see what we can do. Oh, that'll be terrific. <laughs> I'm sure they'll appreciate it very much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you have a, do you have a large family? Do you have siblings that help you um, with your mom? Or? So um, when mom was diagnosed um, my, in 2006, my sister was diagnosed at the same year with um, multiple sclerosis. And when you get that in your 50s, you usually get something called progressive and you don't typically live that long. She lived about five years, and she died in 2011. And um, I kept her, uh, and at one point, I was caregiver for her as well. But um, when she you know, started to decline, I took her to L.A. to live with my niece. And uh, that went tremendously well. My niece had always wanted her to come there anyway, so that worked out well. And, um, but I always kept her up to date on what was happening with mom and, and things like that. They hadn't seen each other in a long time when she died because her speech got slurred right away. When we tried to do FaceTime, my mother was kind of afraid of her. You know, she thought she was, you know, intoxicated or something. So that was kind of sad. So when she died, I chose not to tell her because, you know, my mother had forgotten. She, she still knew me, me, me in 2011, but she had forgotten she had two kids. And she never once asked about her. So when I tell that story, people are shocked that I, did, I chose to keep that from her. But I give my reasons for it. And people say, oh, that, you know, I gave us a good idea. And ironically, in the cruelest of fates, my sister and my husband died on the same day, five years apart. Mm. Just crazy. Crazy. Yeah. And, when I, and when they told me my husband wasn't going to wake up, I was like, don't you die today. But he did. I was like, ah, oh, this is just bad. So July is a really bad month for me, but uh, amazing. And so that was my only sibling. So it's just me and mom. And so when they started, you know, stay in place and take care of yourself, I do that to the letter because I am all my mother has. I have a couple of cousins here in the DC area, but that's it. Two cousins, you know, that's it. And so I have to be really 
careful and taking very good care of myself. I used to always joke that my mother would outlive us all, and you know, so she's trying. <laughs> so I, I I always worry about it if I you know something happens to me like oh geez. So I have my house and a trust for her. If I get hit by a bus or something, my, the sale of this house would take care of her if something oh. happened. So yeah. my my broker. Suggest, got bought an elder care attorney to me when I went to get my husband's insurance money. And that was her suggestion that because I'm basically only child to put my house in the trust for her. Then after I go, then my daughter and granddaughter were, you know, after my mother passes, if something happened to me, then my mother would still be well taken care of. And that's my greatest concern. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I have one more question for you. Yes. What do you wish people who have not encountered dementia in their lives knew about this disease? <laughs> this is going to sound crazy, but it's so honest. You know, I wish they knew it is not contagious. It bothers me tremendously when people stop coming. Okay, people, you're not going to catch it. Come over, sit. Talk. And it's exasperating because my mother helped so many people. And yet those people don't call or visit. I'm, you know, now, of course, when she's old, when she first got it, it really bothered me because her friends were still driving then and stuff. Her, only her best friend from kindergarten, Miss Adams, who I, I had been still trying to get them together every couple months. And, um, but yeah, that really bothers me that uh, people feel like if they're around you, it's going to rub off on them or something. And that, that bothers me immensely. So that's over you can't catch it, people. And the other thing uh, very related to that is the other reason people say, well, you know, we don't have anything to talk about. How about you just come and sit? How about you just, you don't always have to talk. And so those are the, the two things that I think are really uh, important to me that I wish, you know, people realize that yeah. uh, they don't get how isolating it is. And the so days, um, the days are very long. Even just coming and reading them something that they would enjoy, you know, yes. or, you know, yeah. whatever they, they enjoy or watch a television show or read something or listen to some music. Mm -hmm. and, and your mom's ambulatory still, isn't she? She is. Yeah. Take her for a little walk. She is. <laughs> yeah. And they, they do a good job with the walk. And the first thing they did before they put the lockdown on the house is they canceled all field trips. And I mean, when they go a lot of places, and so it's like, you got to call and make an appointment to see your mama. <laughs> they go out a lot. It's amazing. And so I'm sure they miss getting on the bus and going riding somewhere too, you know? So Yeah. It breaks up the day. It is. And so now, I mean, you can see she's going down some, like, so for her 91st birthday, we danced around, but now you have to hold both her hands to kind of steady her. But yeah, it's good. It's yeah. good. She's doing great. Yeah. Well, Loretta, is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners? You know, just to, I know this is a horrible disease, but just try to stay as positive as you can and laugh a lot. I mean, you know, one of the things I say about laughter is that we're not laughing you know, at our loved one, you know, we're sort of laughing with them and without humor, you know, we just wither away. And there's a lot of funny things that are associated with this disease. And we have to, you know, have that, that outlet. And so, you know, and, you know, always remember that and just try to stay as positive as you can. And, you know, I always say tomorrow will be better or at least different. So I try not to take every 24 hours, you know, personally, it, it'll, it'll be better tomorrow. Okay. That sounds great. great. Thank you so much. It was really lovely speaking with you. You're welcome. 
Thank you for listening to Untangling Alzheimer's and Dementia, an Alz Authors podcast. For more details on this episode, please see the show notes. For more info on Alz Authors, please visit alzauthors.com. While you're there, be sure to browse our online bookstore of more than 200 carefully vetted books on Alzheimer's and dementia. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Please email your thoughts on the podcast to alzauthors at gmail.com. Remember, you are not alone. One can sing a lonely song, but we chose to form a choir and create harmony.